Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. I found an interesting story uh, the other day. Not sure exactly uh, how long back it happened. But a plane carrying 55 passengers circled the airport in western Scotland for half an hour. And the reason it circled the airport for half an hour is because the one controller that was on duty, they had to circle the airport for half an hour so that the controller at the, in the control tower could finish his lunch. That's what the story said. The officials at the airport in the Western Isles of Scotland apologized for the incident, but blamed it, made me think that it was recent, because of a shortage of air traffic controllers, of which they only had one. It had left Glasgow, Scotland, 25 minutes late anyway, and finally touched down in its location there in the western part of Scotland, 55 minutes late after the controller returned to his radar screen and could land the plane, but only after... He had finished his lunch. That must have been some lunch, right? But you know, I I read that story thinking about uh, today's message because I thought, you know, life sometimes feels like we're in a holding pattern just circling the runway. Right? You ever feel that way? You're just circling the runway. And what makes it sometimes more challenging or frustrating is we wonder, is anybody even in the control tower that I can land this plane that can signal me to come in? Well, if you feel that way, you're in good company because David, a man called a man after God's own heart, experienced this same same feeling. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 13. And if you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll follow along, be engaged as a listener, whether it's tablet, phone, however you do it, be engaged as a listener. Uh, I believe God will bless you for doing that. It'll be on the screen as uh, I read and you follow along. Psalm 13 this morning. Uh, This is I don't know what number this is, but it wasn't intended to do a series on the Psalms, but Austin said after the second one, it's a series. So it's kind of like, how many of you remember the Lay's potato chip commercials? Wasn't it them? You can't eat just one? So I, you know, like, well, let's do another one. Let's do another one. So that's kind of how this started. So anyway, Psalm 13, you listen and let's hear, let's hear the voice of God through his word. And it says to the choir master, and it says, identifies it probably in your Bible, it is a psalm of David. It's attributed to him as the author. And this is what the word of the Lord says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May God's blessing be on the reading of his word this morning. It's interesting if you look and notice in the two verses, the first two verses, David says four times, how long? How long? Now, there's no indication that David wrote this, uh, that he's writing this because there was necessarily he had sinned. There is certainly psalms that are attributed to moments in his life, Psalm 51, where you know he sinned with adultery and he wrote and penned words of that repentance. But the context, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, the context of writing Psalm 13 is that David is being pursued by an enemy. And despite David's repeated prayers, how long? Four times in verses 1 and 2. It seems as though God is unavailable. It seems as though God is distant. In Psalm 13, the title, the title of today's message is, is When God Seems Distant. When God Seems Distant. Psalm 13 reminds the believer, the Christian, that we must deliberately, intentionally trust the fact that God loves us. That God has committed covenantal love over us. That God has an unfailing love. That God will never forsake His own. Even though it may seem for a season to feel that way. That God feels distant. David felt that God was distant. David perhaps would have said if he lived today that he was in a holding pattern. Just circling around and around and... Nobody in the tower was paying any attention. So let's unpack this this morning, Psalm 13. And I want you to notice with me, if you're following, taking notes, three parts to this psalm that will help us this morning. But before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the Word today to help it apply to our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have Your Word without error, without... uh, Lord, without any mistakes, Lord, that we have the clear written word, the voice of God that we can go into, that we can listen, Lord, that we can actually um, peek in into David's prayer time of how he communed with you, how, God, he spoke words and how he struggled with areas that we all struggle with, maybe many today, even now. Lord, that are struggling. They're here, but Lord, they just feel like for the past week, months, maybe year, maybe years, they're just circling this runway. They just feel like life has got them in a holding pattern. And so, Lord, that you you feel distant. 
I pray that this morning this psalm of David, the psalm of the word of the Lord, will encourage hearts today. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be that which is honoring and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice first with me in verse 1 and 2, as David wrote this, a distant perspective. David had a distant perspective. His perspective was that God seems distant. And there's several, several pieces to this. In verse 1, David feels disconnected. Several things. He, this perspective, he feels disconnected. He says in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? From David's perspective, he felt disconnected. He felt as though God had forgotten him. He had felt that God was not paying attention. He felt that God had just abandoned him in his most difficult time. God, how long? You know, waiting generally is something that we don't like to do naturally, right? I mean, we don't like waiting. We, we just don't like waiting. But what's even worse is when you have to wait and you don't have anything to do. You left your phone in the car when you went into the doctor's office because he always gets you in quickly. But this day is going to be different. Miss so-and-so is in there, and she's going to be there a long time, and you're going to have to sit and wait. And by the time you're free, uh, through reading the fishing magazines and the watchtower, you're bored. Hello? You know, you're trying to find something to occupy your mind. Well, in context of what's going on here with David, David wrote this psalm when he was being, and if you know uh, your, your history, Old Testament history, is that David was being pursued by Saul. At the time of Israel, Saul was the king over Israel. He was the first king that, uh, that ruled over a united Israel. And David was anointed by Samuel, but there was an in-between time. How many of you know there's always an in-between time? <laughs> and that's the difficult part, right? But he had to wait, so there wasn't a lot to do as he was hiding from Saul. David had a lot of time on his hands. Uh, he was holed up in some wilderness area, a Judah, maybe a cave somewhere, and basically all they had to do day in and day out was, you know, to t get provisions, keep watch. But days went into weeks and weeks went into months and it just dragged on and on and on. And he's questioning God, how long? When are you going to act? Now, I think most of you are honest people here and you would admit that sometimes if you're true... You know, God seems to move really slowly at times, right? I mean, there are times in which God just, it just feels like things are just, you know, you, you thought if I do X, Y, Z and this will happen, then in a month, bam. Well, a month came and bam, didn't happen. And you kept going on and on. See, we live in hurry, hurry, hurry. And sometimes God lives in wait, wait, wait. And we don't like that. The author, hymn writer, Phillips Brooks, 
who wrote the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks, his biographer said that normally he is a very calm man, but one day Phillips Brooks, who pastored up in New England, was clearly agitated and he was pacing back and forth in his office like a caged lion, his biographer said. And a friend asked him, Pastor Brooks, what's the trouble? And Brooks replied, the trouble is, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Can you relate to that? You remember the story of Joseph? You want to talk about a story that maybe David probably thought about, meditated on, remembered. Remember God put Joseph in a place of great influence over Egypt. Really, some people see it as second only under uh, Pharaoh himself. But how did Joseph get there? And again, we're not going to read the passages, but you remember the story of Joseph. First, his brothers sold him into slavery. That doesn't seem like a good strategic process, does it? Uh, when he was a teenager and they, these marauders and people that bought him hauled him off to a foreign land, and then for a season he seemed to be uh, prospering, and then he was in the house of an of a Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife made some false accusations, and as a result, what happened? Joseph got thrown into prison, and a long time went by, and you would suppose that if you were Joseph, it would be quite natural to pray, God, how long is this going to go on? Are you there? Are you paying attention? But God, it just didn't seem to hear Joseph. And so if an opportunity came along that this had to be it. And he had some inmates in, the, in his cell. And uh, a couple of these fellow inmates, uh, he was able by God's, by the Holy Spirit to interpret dreams that they had. The one man, if you remember, was the king's cupbearer. He was kind of the, the one who tasted the food of the king, right? So if somebody was going to poison the king, better old Fred die than the king, all right? We can replace Fred, just get another cupbearer. So I don't know what his name was, but anyway... And so he interpreted this dream that this cupbearer would be restored when he would be out of prison and he would be restored to his job. And Joseph said, man, I interpreted this dream for you. He said, I just got one request. Will you remember me when you get out of here? And of course the cupbearer said, sure. How could I ever forget, right? But the next verse, if you want to make a note, this is in Genesis 41, in verse 1, it just kind of casually says after that incident, now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. So this time when this cupbearer got out and he thought, wow, I better start packing my stuff because he's going to tell everybody what a great man, I, you know, what I can do. But two years went by and then Pharaoh had a dream and this cupbearer says, you know, I just remembered something. I just remembered there was this guy in prison who interpreted my dream. And you're like, two years, man, couldn't you think of me quicker than that? But it took him two years. And of course, you know what happened. But he languished most of his teenage years in 
this prison, false accusation, waiting on God. I think David certainly could relate to that story because, see, David, if you know the story of David and his life and how David was called from the pasture to the palace, you see God's hand, but God's hand was moving intentionally and deliberately, but sometimes God's hand moved slowly. He had been anointed as a king. Remember when Samuel came to the household of Jesse and he anointed uh, David as king? He first looked at all the other brothers and said, is this it? And dad didn't even think too much of his son David because he didn't even call him to the big house to meet the big man. He was still at work. But, But Samuel anointed David as king. But here he is at this moment where Saul is pursuing him, and if you know that history, you know Saul was crazy and he was jealous, and he pursued him like a wild animal, and David, perhaps now in his late 20s, here he was, and he's saying, God, remember that anointing? Remember that word that Samuel gave me? Hello, do you remember that? How long? Well, David's perspective, he felt disconnected, but notice also in verse 2, he felt distressed. He felt distressed. Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David was distressed. He was in turmoil. I mean, he was on an emotional roller coaster. You ever been on that roller coaster? Let me tell you, that kind of roller coaster is more treacherous than anything Disney could ever come up with. The emotional roller coaster... And, I, and some of you, I know stuff going on where, where you just feel like this thing is plummeting downward and like, is there ever any end to this thing? And then all of a sudden, just when you're gasping for air, you're just, and you just feel like life is going like that. David was in turmoil. He was distressed. But then, also in verse 2, not only was he, did God feel distant and was he distressed, but David felt defeated. Boy, that's a tough situation, isn't it? Where you just have, and I, I remember people telling me, said, Tim, you just have a defeated attitude. You know, when you have a defeated attitude, you just feel as though the very life has been sucked out of you, isn't it? You can't even fake a smile. Right? Listen, I've been in church most of my life. I know all about fake smiles. And you do too. When you just, you feel rotten and terrible, but you just, you put on that smile. You can't even fake it. And I think that's why some, some of you just stay home. And I get it. I understand. But, that's, but let me encourage That's the last thing you need to do. But, but David was defeated because he says at the end of verse 2, he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? His enemy, remember, is Saul. Saul was still king. Saul was enjoying all the comforts and perks of being a king. And what, it made, what made it worse was Saul was the bad guy in the story. You know, David was the good guy. He's, he's trying to follow God's will. He's trying to do the right thing. And, he, and again, it's that feeling like, Lord, it feels like the rats are winning the rat race. It feels like those who aren't living for you, those who have no desire for you, it seems as though God, they are being blessed and you're prospering them. And here I am trying to seek your will and your heart. And 
Where are you? How long? God, didn't you know what's happening? He felt defeated. Let me remind you a couple of things. One is God has not forgotten you. Some of you need to hear that today. God has not forgotten you. Look at be on the screen, I think. Isaiah 49. And this is from the New Living Translation. I just like the way it read. Listen to this. Yet Jerusalem says, quote, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. That's what, that's what God's people are feeling in this context in Isaiah, that God has abandoned them. But verse 15, the prophet says, the word of the Lord says through the prophet, he says, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, the Lord says, I would not forget you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. When you look at God's choice servants, when you look at them, there are multiple moments in their life where they felt locked out, shut out, and forgotten by God. But listen to what, I, what I'm going to tell you here. This is really important. Don't buy into the idea that God isn't doing anything. God is always at work, right? He never sleeps nor slumber. He's always on the job. He's always at work in our life. And what God is doing even though we can't necessarily see it, what God is doing is that I believe that, at least true in my life, and I think some of you would, would relate to this, is that God is building things into my life that could not be built into my life except in those moments when I'm desperately trusting in Him. You know, just as it takes years to grow that sturdy oak tree, it takes time to grow a saint. And that's why we need to abandon the myth that there is no such thing as instant godliness. Instant maturity. No such thing. We have instant everything, right? Instant life. David was anointed king in his teens, he had a strong faith. He was living for God, pursuing. He had had, God had given him victory over Goliath. Remember that story? And so did God immediately, through the prophet Samuel, said, all right, boy, go pack your bags. You're going to the throne. Did that happen? You're like, wait a minute. Didn't something happen? Where? What is going on? Did God put him on the throne when he turned 21? You've got to be 21 because that way he can by legal wine in, you know, in Israel, right? No, it didn't happen then. Was he 25? Then surely at 25, you know. No. 26, 27, 28, 20. No. Why? Because God works on an entirely different timetable. Is it 2 Peter, was it 3, 8? It says a day is, a thousand, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That's not some end times math quiz. That, that's just a saying that God is in no way bound or hindered or operating by human time. God is eternal. We don't even know what that means. It just means there's no time. Everything is right now with God. That's why God's work and say, 
you are seated in the heavenlies because God is in the right now. We're in this molasses life, right? Until you hit your 50s, and then it seems like it got in overdrive, right? And you wonder where it all goes, but that's a different sermon. See, see, this is, this is, this is really important. I want to I bear down on this just a little bit. Because this is how God works. If God has locked you up in some frustrating circumstances and you've racked your brain trying to figure out a way out, you've tried to pick that lock a hundred times, but nothing has worked, and all the time you're looking out and seeing the godless, the people who have no interest in the will and purposes of God, what are they doing? They seem to be doing fine, doing well, bought a new car, new house, new job, promote, everything, just go, go, go. Let me encourage you then when it seems as though God is far away, hang on. Now, thankfully, it's not dependent on us hanging on, is it? Because he's hanging on to me, but you just go with me on that. Don't give up. Don't abandon the purposes and the work that God is doing in your life, even in these wilderness valley moments when it appears that things are just dark, You're flying around the runway, and you're thinking, is anybody there? God, are you eating lunch when you should be signaling me in to the landing? God, where are you? Give me an example of this, and I use it a lot because I need to hear it a lot. James 1, remember James 1? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you do what? When you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds, where you're going through all the stuff. Now, notice verse 3. He says, um, you know that the testing of your faith. So that means trials are connected with a testing of your faith. And we've talked about that a lot. What does it do? It produces steadfastness. Okay? It produces stability. But here's verse 4. What I want you to see. James says, and let, see let, that's that's something we have to do. Let steadfastness have its full effect. You get medicine from the doctor, they say, now I want you to take all of it. It'll last you 10 days, take all of it. You take it for a couple of days and like, I feel good, feel better. You haven't allowed it to have its full effect, you see. And what does it do? How does steadfastness, solidness, reliability, that, 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 that firmness that I will not be moved, how does that happen? It happens through the testing of your faith. It happens when it, what is produced from that valley, what is produced from that distant feeling What is produced from that is I am relying and trusting on God, not because I see everything happening around me, but I'm trusting God in the darkness. So that when the light comes, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, he never left me. He never forsake me. So that's that's part of that distant perspective. But notice the second area in verse 3 and 4. 
is it led David to have a desperate prayer. A desperate prayer. I'm going to read verse 3 and 4 from the New Living Translation. Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Look at this. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. You see, when God seemed distant, what did he do? David prayed. David called on God. He prayed desperately. This is not, I lay me down to sleep type of prayer. This is not, bless the vegetables and the meat, good God, let's eat. This is not that kind of prayer, okay? This is not a little, this is a desperate prayer. Have you ever prayed a desperate prayer? Some of you are praying desperate prayers for people in your families right now. A desperate prayer. And notice some elements in this desperate prayer. You see, again, what David, and and again, don't miss this. Instead, and this is where, again, it's a warning to me and all of us, Instead of turning from God in these moments, what did he do? He turned turned to God. Instead of of complaining to men and people, your friends, about God, David complained to God about people. He took it to the Lord. Notice several pieces of this. David's prayer had a concern. Our prayers should be concerned for God's glory, God's reputation, not just for our own happiness. Verse 3 and 4 says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, the ESV, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Verse 4, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Or the New Living Translation, we have defeated him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David wasn't just praying, get me out of this situation. Get me out of this uh, mess that I'm in. Get Get rid of Saul. He was praying, saying, God, you made, you gave a word. You have put your covenantal reputation on the line. And if I could say it this way, that David's anointing as king that if he died at the hand of his enemies without being put on the throne as God had promised, he's saying, in essence, look, God, I am so enraptured by your reputation, your glory, I don't want them to gloat over this defeat. Now, we know that wouldn't happen, right? But David's heart wasn't just about him. Why did he say he he was a man after God's own heart? He was saying, God, I don't want anybody rejoicing that somehow there was a defect or a failure on your part. And you get a little hint. You get a little hint of that here, and certainly David expands on it in other Psalms, that his honor was tied up with his deliverance. I thought about, I won't turn to it, but if you remember in in, uh, Acts chapter 4, you remember when they arrested Peter and John and uh, they brought him before the Sanhedrin leaders and they basically told them, you know, to quit preaching in the name of Jesus and they said, no, (laughs) we're going to keep doing this. 
And they released them, and they went back to the home where all the believers were gathered, and they kind of, you know, they were excited because they had been praying, right, for their release. And it's interesting how they prayed. You remember the prayer, if you look at it in Acts 4, around verse 29 30, they gave God thanks and prayed not to avoid jail. But you know what they prayed for? They said, God, help us to speak even more boldly for your truth. And then, in essence, they said, so that your name would be great and your work would be spread. So God, it isn't just keeping us out of trouble. It's saying, help us, if I could say it this way, if it is going to glorify your name, God, get us into more trouble. Now, that's a... That's a nice prayer to say in an air-conditioned building on July 4th, right? Yeah, we can pray that. Really? That's how David, he, he loved God's glory, but also it wasn't just a concern, but he had a, there was, his prayer was continual. And that speaks that we must continue to seek God, especially when he seems distant. That's not the time to cut and run from God. That's the time to, to, to run even harder to God. David was David loved the presence of God. You remember the psalm that's attributed to his adultery, Psalm 51? Listen to these words from the New American Standard. Psalm 51 verse 10 and 12, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your holy spirit from me. Restore to me. Something has to be restored. That means it's not there. It's, 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 it's empty. You need to restore it. Restore to me the what? The joy of your salvation. Some of you need the joy of knowing your salvation. You need, some, you need the joy of your salvation. And look at this. Sustain me with a willing spirit. You see, the test of faith is not when everything is going good and you're just snapping your fingers and God's just responding like a bellhop kind of theology. No. You know when real faith is? It's when you ain't got nothing to nail it on the wall except you just know God is there. Isn't that the last words of Habakkuk? Quoted a lot. You know why? Because I need it a lot. Remember what he says at the end of Habakkuk? He goes through all that questioning of God at the end of Habakkuk. He says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive olive crop fails and produces no food, that's a big deal in an agricultural economy. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. In other words, there's nothing, God, to verify you're, you're, you're with me in this. But what does he say? Verse 18, he says, yet. Yet, in spite of all the evidence, something even better. He says, yet, I make a conscious choice to rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God, my Savior. There's another aspect of David's prayer. It was a prayer of concern. It was continual, but it brought clarity. Brought clarity. We must keep an awareness of God as well as the enemy before us at all times. Again, 
spiritual battle, spiritual warfare is biblical. There's a lot of goofy stuff that goes under the name of spiritual warfare. That's not even biblical, just craziness, all right? And we can get so demon conscious and devil conscious, we forgot we forget in a sovereign God. But the Bible doesn't pin and say it's either or, it's both and. We, we, we have confidence in God's sovereign reign of our life, but yet we live on an, an earth where we will do spiritual battle against a real enemy. And so this clarity helps keep both realities. You see, Satan is trying to drag the name of Christ through the mud. Why? If he can get you to abandon him, if he can get you to forsake him, if he can just get you to chuck it all, he says, see, and you read about this. This is a thing. You know, uh, uh, deconstructing Christians. They're, they're deconstructing. They're, they're, they've become enlightened. They're giving up, you know, this, this nonsense of Christianity. And so they're, now they've reached this more enlightened place. Let me tell you something. The enemy is real. And he will use everything in his bag to discourage you. Now, I believe that he cannot take your salvation, but he can make you miserable as hell in the process. Why do you know that? Oh, I know. Oh, I know. This clarity in realizing that, God, you are in control, but at the same time, I know there's an enemy that I have to do battle with. You see, that was a desperate prayer of David, when, when God felt distant, he prayed. I have this little, little thing on my, uh, on my little uh, board there above my desk, little saying that I wrote. It says, pray when you feel like it, pray when you don't feel like it, and pray until you feel like it. Amen. I need that reminder. Psalm 13 is a reminder about a distant perspective, a desperate petition, but in verses 5 through 6, the last is a deliberate Praise, a deliberate praise. In verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. Notice that here, and be reminded that David, when he writes those words, he has not yet been delivered. He's still in this, this circling distance. He's not been delivered yet, but he's making, and I want you to see this, he's making a choice to trust in spite of all this. He's making a choice to trust in the loving kindness of God. Verse 6 in the NIV says, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. David's circumstance is still the same. It hasn't changed from verse 1 to verse 6. David is still running for his life, hiding with some of his, his, his uh, mates, as the British would say. He, Saul is still on the throne trying to kill David. All that's still going on. What changed? Don't miss this. What changed? You know what changed? 
Not the circumstance, but David's focus on how he saw the circumstance. And that's where some of you, this morning, you need to change your focus. You see, the value of coming to church every week isn't to humor me. It isn't just, uh, well, you know, something we do as Americans, right? We just go to church every week. You know why you need to be among God's people? It's because you need to be among God's people. You and I can't do this alone. You read your New Testament, it has nothing about a solo, zooming Christianity. We have to be together. But you know what? By coming together in the community, there's an experience and there's something in the assembly of God's people and an atmosphere that happens. Otherwise, why, would, why is the Old Testament continually about assembling together among God's people? Is the New Testament any less? No. There's value because there's something that happens when we are together and we come in that we're so down, we've got to look up to see bottom, and we begin to talk to somebody. We get that encouragement. We're under the worship. We're under the word, and we leave here, and that my focus has changed. I had to recalibrate my eyes to see reality and truth. That's why some of you who come forward and pray, you know what we're praying for? Help me to recalibrate my focus to see God in the midst of my pain. I don't want us to have phony baloney church at Grace Church. What changed? He moved from focusing on himself and his problems at the start of the psalm, and he wraps it up in verse 5 and 6 and shifted his thoughts towards God's covenantal faithful love. And that shift in focus changed him. It, and and here, here, say it this way. It didn't happen accidentally. You know what David did? He took responsibility for his spiritual renewal. It's called growing up. Don't rely on me or anybody to spoon feed you week after week. Take responsibility for your own spiritual life. What does he say? Verse 5. He says, verse 4 ends, he says, my, but lest my enemy, I mean, they're, they're going to gloat over. He said, all this is true. But verse 5, he says, but... He tapped the brakes because this was a runaway car. Sometimes we get in a runaway car of emotions. And some of y'all just disappear for weeks on end. You just go. You're just abandoned. And somebody, you know what? When the enemy comes in like a flood, what does the Bible say? God raises a standard. You need to tap those brakes and say, but... I will rejoice in God's covenantal, unfailing love. Yet, I know too much about God to let this thing run off the road. I need to change my focus. You see, it's interesting that Satan, as I said, his tool is to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Wasn't that exactly what he did in Genesis 3? 
the serpent said, you know, did God really say? Because he knows, essentially Satan's argument, you know, is that he's holding out on you. Because he knows this, this will be beneficial to you if you disobey him. So just go with it. Find your truth, Eve. You don't have to wait on God. Don't trust in God's goodness over your life. You see, even Joseph, through all that he went through, affirmed in Genesis 50, because he saw, as he looked at his life, he said, surely what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We deliberately make a choice, people, of whether we're going to focus on God's covenantal love over our life or not. It's interesting, the Hebrew word, one scholar noted about trust, has the nuance in the word of relying or leaning upon someone or something. Trusting in God means that I'm relying, but I like the word lean. Lean. You know, when you lean up against the wall, you're hoping that wall stays. You ever leaned up against a chair and the chair didn't hold, right? Right? Some of you I see are reminiscing some of those moments. But you know what I thought of? I thought of the old hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Than Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Are you saying, Pastor, God is a crutch? You bet, because I'm a cripple without Him. you darn right He's a crutch. And how do we get this? We don't get it by trying to earn God's love. We get it by receiving God's free grace, free mercy. God saved us because it pleased Him to do so. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, Ephesians 2. It is a gift of God. One of the reasons I think I'm using a lot of Spurgeon illustrations is because some of the great treasures of the church is Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermons on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. Uh, and there's a story of Charles Spurgeon, a British preacher of the late 19th century, and he was walking through the countryside making maybe a pastoral visit with a friend, and he was there on this little farm of this friend, and he noticed... Uh, on this man's barn, a weather vane. Y'all know what a weather vane is? Was it like usually like a rooster or something up there? All right. And he noticed on the barn a weather vane, and at the top of the vane, the weather vane, were the words, God is love. And Spurgeon remarked to his friend and said, hey, this is, I don't know if that's really appropriate because you're sending the wrong message. You're you're sending the wrong message because weather vanes are unchangeable, but God's love is constant. And his friend said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, you misunderstood the meaning of why I have it like that. 
because that weather vane is stating the truth that no matter which way the wind blows, God loves me. No matter which way the wind blows, God loves us and He is committed over us. God may seem distant, but I hope that we're encouraged to join with David in rejoicing in God's unfailing love regardless of the circumstance. And I'm not minimizing circumstances. But Psalm 103 verse 11 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. You see, if I could go back just real quick to verse 6 of Psalm 13. It says, I will sing the Lord's praise for He has been good to me. You know how He's been good to us? He's been good to us, people, because He gave us Jesus. He gave us Christ. The psalm that I read, verse 11, says in Psalm 103, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How has he been good to us? He has been good to us because he demonstrated his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How has, been God, how has God been good to you? He's given you Christ. Don't run from God. Run to Him. Let's pray.